Glenn Roberts. Glenn Roberts got his nickname from his pitching prowess in American Legion baseball. But Fireball Roberts sadly lived up to his name in 1964 at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. It was one of NASCAR's worst crashes. The race had just begun. It was the seventh lap with 393 more to go. The drivers had settled in. They were finding their rhythm. At the time, Roberts was a popular driver. He was in the prime of his career. On that day, he was running in the middle of the pack. But as the cars moved through turn two, a collision occurred between Ned Jarrett and Junior Johnson. Glenn Roberts swerved to try to avoid a pileup. His car spun out of control, and it slammed against the retaining wall. The impact punctured a hole in Robert's gas tank. When the car rolled over, it burst into flames. It was the worst inferno the sport has ever seen. By the time Fireball Roberts was pulled from his car, burns covered about 80% of his body. Six weeks later, a 35-year-old Roberts died from complications. Today, Fireball Roberts is buried in Daytona behind turn three. You know, major changes resulted in the sport after Glenn Roberts' death. Fire retardant safety suits became standard. Onboard extinguishing systems were upgraded. Rubber fuel cells replaced metal gas tanks. Following the crash, NASCAR implemented a whole new set of terms and requirements for its cars and its drivers. Post-crash NASCAR looked a lot different than pre-crash NASCAR. The sad demise of Fireball Roberts altered racing forever. Well, this morning, I want to talk about another crash in another race. Fireball Adam spun out of control and went up in flames, and his crash permanently altered the human race. Adam and Eve sinned, and their rebellion against God subjected all of his creation to decay and to death. You see, God created the first man from the dust, and it's to the dust that we return Now, when anybody anywhere is buried, it is a reminder of Adam's crash. Now, as I said last week, NASCAR racing intensifies in the turns. Cars bunch up. Drivers jockey for position in the turns. A NASCAR race is won or lost in the turns. Last week, we compared the Bible to a stock car race. The starting line is the genesis of the heavens and the earth. And the first big turn is the creation of the man and the woman. God made them in His image, male and female. And He plopped them down in a garden called Eden. God gave Adam dominion over all He had created. I mean, the guy's very first job is CEO. He's got authority. He co-ruled with God. Adam and Eve were the perfect couple living in the perfect world, eating perfect fruit, enjoying a perfect relationship. I mean, this was the perfect gig. Think about it. Adam never had to hear about how much money Eve's daddy made. 
Eve never had to hear about how good Adam's mom could cook. It was the perfect world. And they both lived together naked and unashamed. In other words, the first couple had nothing to hide. They had no hang-ups. They were so unselfish, they were oblivious to themselves. They were naked, and they didn't even realize their nakedness. Adam and Eve had quite the hookup. And here's the kicker. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. I mean, God and Adam had this cool relationship. They took walks together. They hung out together. This was the reason that mankind was created. You know, the Bible tells us that God is love. But love always needs an object. Thus, God created the man and the woman for fellowship. God wanted to love and be loved. He wanted to know and be known. He wanted to serve and be served. He wanted a real relationship. But here's what we learned last week. God doesn't just desire any old relationship with us. He always has a specific type of relationship in mind. He thinks through the arrangements that He desires with His people. This includes terms and conditions and promises. It sets out agreements and establishes boundaries. God provides roles for those involved in the agreement. You see, God desires a relationship with man, but it's always a certain kind of relationship. And the arrangement that God orders is called a covenant. Last week, we talked about God's initial covenant with mankind, the Edenic covenant, named after the garden Adam and Eve called home. It was a basic, simple agreement. God creates paradise. God gives paradise to Adam and Eve. God allows them to enjoy and rule over paradise. And all God asks in return is for the man and the woman to love Him. I think that's a reasonable request. How about you? Just love me, God says. You see, the, but for love to be meaningful, it has to be voluntary. A love that's assumed or a love that's coerced is not love at all. Thus, love had to have a choice. Love had to choose. And so God told Adam and Eve that they could eat of every tree in the garden, every tree except one. The lone tree with the forbidden fruit was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man's restraint in regards to this tree, his obedience to God, his faith in God's request that God was asking what was good and right was his way of telling God, that he was loved. But guess what happens sometimes in the turns? Cars and people, they go crash. Fireball Adam crashed. He and his wife chose not to trust God. They bit the fruit and rolled the car, and all of life went up in flames. And Genesis chapter 3 records the fall of mankind. On April 26, 1986, the worst nuclear accident the world has ever seen took place in the Chernobyl region of the old Soviet Union. A fire started in reactor number four, which released 190 tons of highly radioactive debris into the atmosphere. Today, 25 years later, the effects of this tragedy are still evident. 
particularly among the children born in the contamination zone. The children of Chernobyl are now a humanitarian concern all over the world. Pictures of these children are heart-wrenching. I'll, I'll just give you one. Empty eye sockets, bloated legs, club feet, misshaped heads, all sorts of painful physical deformities. I mean, look at these children, and you realize that something has gone horribly wrong. This was not the design. This could not have been God's plan. Radiation poisoning is the sole explanation. It's the only thing that would make sense of the human wreckage, of the warped and twisted bodies. And when you look at the world today, the pain, the heartache, the distortion, the perversion, you get the same impression, don't you? That things aren't right. This is just not right. Something terribly twisted has happened in our collective past. You see, without Genesis chapter 3, there are no adequate explanations. But here we learn that sin poisoned the original creation. That we are all living our lives today in the contamination zone. I've heard it put, Adam bombed. He bombed. And it was the first Adam bomb. And its fallout has contaminated everything God has created. It's true. Our world today is no longer what God meant for it to be. Life has gone haywire. A wrench has been thrown into the gears. And it is the Bible that provides the victims with an explanation. Genesis 3 is the biblical account of the fall of man. Adam's crash. And how that one crash and burn changed the entire human race and life on earth since. After Glenn Roberts' disaster, NASCAR reorganized their sport. And likewise, after Adam's crash, God drew up a new covenant. Remember, God never gives up on a relationship with man. Never. He never gives up. But His answer to our sin is always a covenant. It's always a loving, grace-filled, faith-based covenant that comes to our rescue. And Adam is no exception. Well, here in Genesis 3, we're going to look at the Adamic covenant. We want to recap the initial sin. We read these verses last week. But then we're going to spend some time in the text probing the far-reaching ramifications of their sin in God's covenant. Now remember, chapter 3 records the origin of human sin. But sin existed beforehand, before this chapter. We talked last week about an angelic revolt that erupted in heaven. That Lucifer or Satan let pride fill his heart. He tried to steal the glory from God. A third of the angels joined in. Legend has it that Lucifer, he caught wind of God's plan to create humans from the dust. And then assigned the angels to their valet service. I mean, this was an assault on Satan's pride. He could never cater to these little dust mites. And so to avoid the humiliation, he tried to stop God's plan. Last week we read about the war over creation. But the battle continues. Satan couldn't stop God's creation, so now he tries to spoil it. The cosmic revolt that reached the halls of heaven now spills out over into the earth. 
And Satan appears again, this time in the garden, to tempt Adam and Eve. And Satan's strategy is along two lines. You see it in these early verses. He tempts Eve to both doubt God's word and then doubt God's love. You know, twice the New Testament states, Eve was deceived. You know, women are more verbal than men. We know this. They like conversation. But the problem was that Eve spoke to the wrong person. She goes toe-to-toe with a skillful manipulator. And once you start negotiating with Satan, man, you're as good as trapped. Eve bites. Adam follows. And the rest is history. Suffice it to say, the original sin wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Oh, no. Eve wanted to be like God. But like God apart from God rather than under God. She lusted for autonomy. She sought wisdom, but wisdom without God. The end of verse 6 says of Eve, She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. We know that Eve was deceived, but Adam, he sinned willfully. And in the instant that his teeth pierced the fruit skin, the universe was never the same. In Genesis 2, verse 17, God had warned Adam that if he ate the forbidden fruit, he would surely die, and die he did. Death entered the human sphere as soon as he bit that fruit. Spiritually, the man and the woman, they died instantly. Sin caused a breach between them and God. Something died inside of Adam. The warmth of God's Spirit was suddenly replaced by a coldness in a sense of alienation, in an emptiness, in a selfishness. They died spiritually that day. But physically, they also began to die. It culminates under a tombstone. But death began when Adam sinned, the moment that he sinned. At that very moment, his body started to slowly deteriorate. Entropy or decay began to take a toll on mankind. And not only did entropy take hold of humanity... It impacted the whole universe. Did you know we live in a universe that's winding down? That's wearing out? Romans 8 verse 20 puts it, The creation was subjected to futility. Randomness suddenly invaded God's orderly creation. Sin marred God's perfect world. All of a sudden, malfunctions became commonplace. Things began to break down. Nature spun out of control. You know, the Hebrews have a word to describe the perfect state of God's original creation. Shalom, or peace. When Jesus returns, He'll restore creation to this perfection. And Jesus will be called the Prince of Shalom, or the Prince of Peace. But the fall of man shattered Shalom. Before the fall, all of nature was synced up with God. Sin is now the bug in the program. It's the virus in the hard drive that keeps us out of sync. In essence, Mother Nature no longer cooperates with God the Father. You know, the gentle rain that that waters your yard can also become heavy rains that flood your city. The light breeze that raises a kite can rip the roof and siding right off your house. Mother Nature has developed a severe case of PMS. That's what's happened. Sin has defiled God's perfect world. The world that we live in is no longer as God intended. 
when a tornado rips apart a street, or sails mutate into a cancer, or car slides over a guardrail, don't blame it on God. It was man who rejected God's warning and struck out on his own. Man thought that he could shape a better world. The havoc we see in the world today is the result of our own insanity. The immediate effect of sin showed up first in the man and the woman. As soon as they bit the fruit, we're told, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. All of a sudden, their eyes were open. They knew. Sin brought self-awareness. You see, prior to sin, Adam and Eve, they were God-centered people. They were other-centered people. Now, all of a sudden, they become self-centered people. You know, sin makes life all about me. Eve gained her enlightenment. Her eyes were open, but the knowledge shattered her innocence. Now, independent from God, she feels inadequate and ashamed. I mean, this once graceful, beautiful, confident lady is now this bag full of insecurities. In verse 7, Adam and Eve, they try to remedy their situation. Notice, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. You would think they would have immediately admitted their sin and run to God and thrown themselves on God's mercies. Instead, they hide. That's always our first impulse after we sin. We want to hide. We want to cover up. Adam and Eve, they lost, launched the first cover-up. They sewed together fig leaves and they made these green leafy speedos. It was the original fruit of the looms. That's what it was. I've heard it said, after she sinned, Eve became the only woman in history to say, I haven't got a thing to wear, and it'd actually be true. Before that, she didn't need any clothes to wear. Adam and Eve, they try to cover their selfishness and rid themselves of their insecurities, but the plan backfires. I heard from someone who knows these things that fig leaves are very, very itchy, which means their efforts made them more self-obsessed, not less. In fact, you could say that the rest of human history is all about fig leaves. It is. Everything man does from this point onward is a way for us to try to absolve our guilt and shore up our self-doubts and feel good about ourselves again. From here on, man will polish his vanity and stroke his ego and pursue his ambitions, and show off his accomplishments as a form of fig leaves. Did you know, even religion itself is a form of fig leaves. Good works, and charitable deeds, and sacred rituals, and self-righteousness, it's nothing more than man's attempts to try to cover his sin. Religion is our invention. We're going to discover that God has a solution. It's called covenant. Verse 8 is so sad. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Normally they would be walking with Him. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I mean, this would be funny if it were not so tragic. The president and the first lady of creation are suddenly hiding in the bushes, scratching like crazy. I like this cartoon. It's an autumn day. 
Leaves are falling to the ground. And Eve is scolding Adam. Will you please pick up your clothes? That's funny. Well, how life changed for Adam. He's gone from hanging out with a naked babe to being nagged by the same woman to pick up his clothes. Well, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Now, now please understand, this isn't the voice of some angry mobster banging on your door seeking revenge. Where are you? I know you're in there. I'm going to get you. That's not what's happening. This isn't the Godfather. It's God the Father. I mean, to read God's question accurately, you have to read it with the voice of a heartbroken dad seeking a lost and wayward child, longing for him to come home. Where are you, son? I love you. Please come home. God calls lovingly. But men, men, all the men in this room need to notice who God calls out. Though Eve sinned first, God wants to talk to the men about this. He says, Adam, where are you? God holds Adam responsible. As we say so often, the buck stops with the buck. Every man wants to be the head of his house, the king of his castle. But men, a serious responsibility comes with this honor and this privilege. Too many men are like Adam here. Notice, where is Adam when Eve bites the fruit? Verse 6 tells us, her husband with her. Eve is under attack. The deception is on. And Adam is an apathetic bystander. He does nada. Adam fails to lead. He fails to protect his wife. He never intervenes in the conversation between Eve and Satan. And we're still paying for it today. This is the sin of scores and scores of so-called men, even Christian men. Here is today's greatest social problem. Men are failing their families. Oh, they pay the mortgage, they buy the groceries, but they leave the spiritual leadership and the spiritual nurturing to their, nurturing to their wives. This was Adam's error. And guys, if it brought down the entire human family, don't you think it'll have a negative effect upon your family? I mean, here's what happened in the first marriage. The man failed to lead, to take charge. The woman then usurped his authority. And Satan stepped in to wreak havoc in the aftermath. And the same scenario has been repeated countless times throughout history. You know, some Christian men, they, they think that just because they're moral guys, they don't go out and get drunk or use drugs or cheat on their wife, just because they're moral guys, they must be pleasing to God. Not hardly. A husband and a father needs to be aware of what's going on spiritually in his family. He needs to be the leader. He needs to be the one taking the initiative to more and more, again and again, draw his family back to God. He's the one that needs to teach spiritual truths to his wife and to his kids. He's the one who needs to pray. He's the one who needs to set the example and set the pace. Guys, be a spiritual leader in your family, not an apathetic Adam. And notice what Adam does when he gets called out. Oh boy, he's got some excuses. Oh, he's got some... Listen to Adam's excuses, verse 10. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Notice the first time fear enters the picture. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
Sin made him vulnerable now to all sorts of danger. He could no longer trust his world. He could no longer trust his position in the world because of his sin. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Sounds like God is baiting him for a confession. God knew. Adam's first response to his sin was to hide. But his second response now is to hurl. He hurls blame. Adam becomes very good at the blame game. Adam says to God, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Now this is pretty arrogant on Adam. First thing he does, he blames a woman. You heard that before. He blames the woman, but then he's more arrogant than that because he blames God for giving him the woman. He blames God for Eve. He says to God, the woman whom you gave to be with me. God, it's your fault that I got this unruly woman on my hip. Now I'm ashamed to say it, but there have been times when I've done the same. I'll lose my cool with Kathy, and I'll blame her for my sin. Oh, she made me so mad. Not unless I let her. I was in control. I'm responsible for my temper. She can't make me mad unless I let her. Understand, what a wife does is no excuse for a husband's temper or for a husband's sin. God holds the man responsible. The buck stops with the buck. And a leader doesn't make excuses. Well, the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And now the woman plays the blame game. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve uses that old Flip Wilson line that used to get so many laughs. The devil made me do it. Hey, but God doesn't laugh at Eve, nor does He laugh at us. Guys, we have all sinned. And the first step to overcoming our sin is to stop blaming it on our spouse or our kids or our boss or our church or the economy or the devil or how hard it is or how tough life is. Hey, God in His grace wants to forgive you and empower you. But first, you've got to come out of the bushes, man. You've got to stop hiding and stop hurling, and you've got to own what you've done. Notice what happens next. The man blames the woman, the woman blames the snake, and the snake doesn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. First, God curses the snake. He says, you're destined for belly flops. You're going to slither from now on. You're, you're going to crawl on your belly. Here's the origin of the expression, bite the dust. That's the destiny of the snake. God says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is the part of verse 15 that's easiest to interpret. Most women are afraid of most snakes. You agree with that? Sure. Yeah. There's an enmity between women and snakes. But God will also put enmity or hostility between your, the serpent's seed, and her, the woman's seed. 
Now this expression, the seed or sperm of the woman, this is bizarre terminology. Nowhere does the seed belong to the woman. This verse speaks of a unique birth, a supernatural birth. Notice the next line. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here God makes a covenant. He establishes an arrangement. He foreshadows salvation. Here God initiates a means of restoring order to this fallen world, to redeeming man back to a relationship with him. Genesis 3 verse 15 is one of the most strategic verses. It's the seed verse for salvation. Put in your Bible. It's from which all the other promises are going to grow. It's known as the proto-evangelicum. It's the first mention of the gospel. The seed of the woman proves to be an idiom for Jesus' virgin birth. The seed of the woman is the virgin-born Son of God. And on the cross, Satan bruised his heel. He did. Satan inflicted a blow upon Jesus. But it was a non-lethal blow. Three days later, he rose from that blow. Jesus, though, crushed the serpent's head. Jesus literally stripped Satan of his authority, of his headship over the earth. The devil now has no power over the believer in Jesus. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. Like the serpent of old, the devil now bit the dust. You know, it's intriguing why Jesus had to be born the seed of the woman. Romans 5 verse 12 tells us, the one man, through one man, sin entered the world. The Bible teaches that everyone born of Adam inherits Adam's sin. Psalm 51 verse 5 puts it, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. As cute as my little grandson is, I got to tell you, he's still a diabolical little sinner. He'll start proving it before long. We're all born with a sinful, Adamic nature. Our natural tendency is to rebel and go our own way. Our internal compass, it points to I, not God. There's an old rock and roll song by George Thorogood and the Destroyers. You remember George? On the day I was born, the nurses all gathered round. And they gazed in wide wonder at the joy they had found. The head nurse spoke up. She said, leave that one alone. She could tell right away, I was bad to the bone. <laughs> George Thurgood and the destroyers, my oh my. But every human born to Adam is bad to the bone. You see, here's the point. Through Adam, sin gets passed down. Sin is a trait inherited from dad, not mom. This is why Jesus is called the seed of the woman. Since he was virgin born, he could be born sinless. Thus, Jesus could die in our place for our sin. Jesus was good to the bone. Thus, he could be our sacrifice. Romans 5 verse 19 reads, As by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Ah, that's great news. We inherit sin from Adam, but we inherit a right standing with God from Jesus. In Adam, we're born in sin, but in Jesus, we are born again to righteousness. You know, I've talked to people who resent this idea of mankind's original sin. You know, why should I have to suffer for something Adam did? Why can't I decide my own fate 
be the captain of my own ship. Well, be careful what you ask for. For I doubt if any of us could do any better than Adam and Eve. We would have also sinned. But here's the catch. If your own sin condemns you, then your own righteousness has to save you. God in His wisdom and in His grace condemned us all in Adam so He could save us in Jesus. In verse 16, the consequences of Adam's sin reach deep into our lives. God judges the woman and her role in the revolt. He assigns her punishment. He says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Mom, imagine what could have been. I mean, God's original creation called for pain-free contractions. <laughs> no pain, all gain. You'd have had more kids if that had been the case. Sadly, that ended with the very first delivery. Eve's sin brought labor pains. A wrench was thrown into the gears of family and of human reproduction. Here the source, here's the source for infertility and for miscarriages and for C-sections. But the woman's sentence was twofold. God also tells Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. I mean, she's sentenced to labor pains and now laboring with a pain. Realize God's order for the home predated the fall of man. The Edenic covenant made the husband leader in his home. The wife was to follow. But now Eve's lot in life has gotten harder. Her husband is a sinner. She's suddenly saddled with the tough task of submitting to an imperfect authority, a mistake-prone leader. And from here on, family life will get much more complicated. In fact, a power struggle will ensue. A woman desires intimacy in her marriage, but she no longer trusts her husband. He, he's proved fallible. And rather than follow him, she perfects ways to control him. This, of course, discourages him from stepping up and leading. And it becomes a vicious cycle. A heartbreaking cycle that just goes round and round. Realize the issues plaguing your marriage today, as do the solutions, trace all the way back to the Garden of Eden and to the Adamic covenant. Notice verse 17, God judges the man Adam. He says, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. And you shall, you shall eat the herb of the field. Notice Adam's work changes dramatically. Before the fall, he gets hungry. He walks up to a fruit tree. He grabs off a big globe of fruit and he just munches and quenches his, his, his hunger. It's great, good. It's all right there for me. He just picks fruit off the tree. Just gets his food right off the tree. Now, all of a sudden, after the fall, he's got to plow. And he's got to sow seed. And he's got to weed. And he's got to water. And he's got to grow food in his fields. And it becomes much, much harder. Prior to the curse, food and work were unrelated. Food had nothing to do with a paycheck. He didn't have to work for food. He could just go pick it off a tree. 
God provided him all the food that the man and woman needed. Adam worked for fun. But this changed after the fall. You're going to go to work in the morning, aren't you? But it's not going to be for fun, I don't think. Since Adam chose independence from God, God said, well, you can start by growing your own food. You want to be independent? Earn your own living. And while he's tilling the ground, he's going to encounter some constant obstacles, thorns and thistles. Suddenly, work is going to become work. Work is no longer going to be fun. Now it's going to be work. It's going to grow from being a breeze to being a burden. Notice verse 19. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, until dust you shall return. He was taken from the ground and he's going to work himself back into the ground. Before man's sin, work was no sweat. Now no more. Now he works by the sweat of his brow. From now on, man will never get out of his job a reward equal to what he puts into his job. Did you hear that? You'll never get out of your work all that you put into it. He's taken from the dirt and he's going to work himself back to the dirt. Every time man clocks in, he leaves a little something of himself behind on the job. He literally works himself to death. This is the Adamic covenant. And this is now the plight of every single man. In his book, Working, Studs Turkle, he writes of these thorns and thistles in this whole experience called work. He says, work is about violence to the spirit as well as to the body. It's about ulcers as well as accidents, shouting matches as well as fistfights. Above all, it's about daily humiliations. To just survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded. It's about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for wonder rather than apathy, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Wow. Turkle's description of work as a Monday through Friday sort of dying. It's right out of Genesis, isn't it? You never get out of it, all that you put into it. You know, some guys I know, they bounce from job to job to job. They never settle down vocationally. Why? Because they're always looking for that perfect job. I hate to tell you this, but it does not exist. It doesn't. It's imaginary. You know, we have people who join the church staff. Oh, I'm going to be working for the church. It's going to be like going to heaven every day. It's going to be a bed of roses. Oh, if you only knew. They don't realize that every occupation, every corporation has thorns and thistles. It all goes back to Adam. All careers, all jobs have obstacles that irritate and aggravate. It's interesting. God sees to it that women have pain in labor and men labor in pain. It's interesting to me. When a woman chooses to work outside the home, she gets double the trouble. She bears the family curse and the work curse. You know, it's ironic, but modern society has revamped family life to liberate women. I think it's done just the opposite. It's burdened them down further. Mothers have been convinced that they need a career to be fulfilled. In reality, all they're getting is a double curse. 
It's amazing, though, how the ancient covenant that God made with Adam so thoroughly shapes our lives today. From nature to home life to the workplace. I mean, the curse that God put on man's original sin shows up every day in a million ways. When the car breaks down or the kid throws up or you have a fight with your spouse, when there's thorns and thistles, when labor pains make your life harder, let it serve to remind you that this world is not as God intended. The covenant that God made with Adam had two purposes. It serves as a reminder of our sin and fall, but it also provides us hope for our salvation. I love verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The name Eve means life giver. Adam took very seriously God's promise to Eve that through her seed, salvation would come. That the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. You see, sin came into the world through Eve. And Adam believes that life will also come into the world through Eve. That he will get his life back through the seed of the woman, through Eve. Verse 21. Also for God and his I'm sorry. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. God didn't like the fig leaves, so he dressed them in leather. Got him some furs. Animal skins necessitates the death of an animal. Don't know any animal that gives up their skin voluntarily. The animal has to be sacrificed. God told Adam, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. And for sin to be forgiven, there's always a price that has to be paid. There has to be a sacrifice. And so according to the covenant that God made with Adam, here's how God intends to remove our guilt and alleviate these new fears and resolve these insecurities that have come from the fall and restore our willingness to trust and, and restore us, redeem us back to where we need to be. Here's how He's going to do it. Through a sacrifice. Ultimately, through the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus now covers us with His righteousness. It's Jesus who takes away our nakedness and our vulnerability and our fears and our shame and our guilt. For in Christ, we become fully accepted to God. And it all happens through a covenant. And there's more to come. Father, we thank You for Your Word today and for Your love for us. Lord, I pray that You would help us to understand this crazy world we live in. Lord, we're, we're all the time, we, we see the effects of, of the fallout. We live in a contamination zone. We live in a, a world where natural disasters occur. We live in a workplace where we're always being pressed and frustrated and aggravated. Even our home life, our, our great designs for our home life often go unfulfilled. And why? It's because of this curse. It's because of this, this predicament that we've created. But we're thankful that in the midst of it all, that your covenant includes an antidote, a promise of salvation.
We thank you for the seed of the woman, for Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born sinless, so that he could die in our place for our sin. We thank you for him. And we thank you that even from the very beginning, he was promised to us. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know him, who's never given their heart and life to him, I pray that they would do so right now in these next few moments. As our heads are bowed and while our eyes are closed, if there's someone here this morning who would say, Pastor Sandy, I've never given my life to Jesus, but I want to today. Would you just raise your hand? You and I can pray together. Is there anybody that would say, yes, I want to pray. I want to receive Christ today. That's great. I see your hand, young lady. Great. Anybody else? Well, this lady who's raising her hand, while our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you'll just look at me, let's pray together right now. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I want you just to repeat what I say. We're going to pray right now. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying in my place to forgive me of my sins. I'm sorry for what I've done. And I ask for your forgiveness today. Wash me clean. Make my life your home. Come and live in me now. In Jesus' name, amen.